0: Hold on to your butts. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Wesley demands. Now this affects Iris. Um, Iris, where are you? What you feel only matters to you.
1: I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Iris, I have a tip for you.
0: Don't take drugs! Or whatever movies with Wesley and
1: Me. <laughs> <laughs> what up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host, Iris, and I'm here with my older brother, Wesley. Today, we're talking a documentary from 2020, The Bee Gees. How can you mend a broken heart? Pop quiz, Wes. Hot shot. Hottest Bee Gees brother?
0: Hottest? I don't know about hottest, but I think the most appealing is Barry is the oldest brother. Because I think... It didn't wasn't specified here, but I always got the sense he was kind of a whore. Like, I got the sense that he was like the fully open shirt, all the chest hair, like, like, how you doing? I don't know that he talks like that normally. Uh, the
1: falsetto was his thing, but that definitely wasn't his speaking voice.
0: I mean, Maurice was kind of shorter and, and balder and and Robin looked like Robin. And uh, maybe Andy. Maybe Andy was more rounded cute, but I think for the most part, the statuesque Barry with his chest hair was the chick getter.
1: Yeah, Andy was the well-rounded teen idol pop star. Yep. Whereas Barry was a little bit, yeah, hairier, more mature. I have to say, Barry looked pretty good in those tight white pants.
0: Tight white everything. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, and the, and the exposed thing. And, you know, there's a reason that Robin's all done up in a turtleneck and stuff like that. <laughs> Second question, best BG song?
0: It's tough, man. Stayin' Alive is consistently up there. I think I was telling you that "Staying Alive covers like easy listening and rock stations and those like broad spectrum stations and oldies. It's everywhere. That said, the one I probably keep going back to the most is You Should Be Dancing. Right, right.
1: Ah, many ah, dancing. Yeah. yeah. dancing. Yeah. yeah. Wait, was that you or Molly?
0: No, that's the uh thanks. That's the the <laughs> harmony. Obviously, you know, you have to watch This documentary and really to enjoy It, if you're not a Bee Gees fan, if you're One of those disco sucks, disco haters Maybe this one isn't for you, right? Like, I think you have to come with a love of the Bee Gees Where you're interested enough to sit through What felt like a pretty long feature Doc.
1: Well, they have a long Illustrious history to cover But I knew nothing about the Bee Gees And only had a, a Modicum of appreciation for their music Outside of the Saturday Night Fever Soundtrack, so, but I found The the doc to be pretty engaging Pretty engrossing, pretty illuminating
0: I mean, they went through a lot before Saturday Night Fever Kelly said, like, here it comes Because we transitioned to, like, uh, Act 2 or something And uh, then it was, like, a half an hour after that Before they got to Saturday Night Fever
1: Oh my gosh I mean, the Bee
0: Gees, they found their success And they had, like, hit singles And they were like, I had five Rolls Royces By the time I was 21 And then they broke up And then they reformed and issued a live album And then Saturday Night Fever came along
1: a long ride, but also the kind of usual vices, the usual pitfalls of music and fame and stardom.
0: Yeah, way too much, way too young.
1: Drug problems, breakups, addiction issues, grappling with identity in addition to and apart from fame. Like these are all pretty storybook music trajectory things.
0: I mean, can you imagine if Andy had been a part of the group from the outset? He was just too young. There was no problem with his ability. Older brother Barry wanted him to cut his teeth and kind of get a feel for his own career, his own talent. And then he could pull his weight in the group. But I think right after, within you know a few months of his joining officially the Bee Gees, long after their heyday, like well into the 80s, he died right after that. If he had been yeah. saddled with all the fame of his much older brothers from the get-go... Like, you know, I mean, he he only made it to 30. Can't say that Andy's lucky by any means, but
1: he seemed to grow up just outside of the spotlight, you know, where he got some of it bleeding over onto him. And then he had his own career in his own right. Yeah. But overall, pretty tragic story.
0: I mean, he was kind of tacked on, I think, unfortunately, to this documentary. He's little more than a side note in the Bee Gees history. They made sure to kind of pepper him throughout, and then his ultimate death was kind of the beginning of the unraveling for the group, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, finally speaking. And then they lasted until Maurice's death in 2012. But um, I never felt much like Andy was a big part of this documentary.
1: He was only to the extent that the family was a big part of this documentary. Yeah. You know, just to illustrate how little I knew about the BGs, Gees, I didn't know that these dudes were brothers.
0: The Brothers Gibb? It was supposedly the uh, origin of the BGs name, the Brothers Gibb. But it turns out that's not true. I just learned that today. It's, uh, it was Barry Gibb and then a record producer and another guy all had the initials, B.G.,
1: Oh, Bee Gees. There's some Beatle-ish kind of ring to it, too.
0: Yeah, they're right next to them in the CD store or the LP store, as the case might have been back then.
1: Right, and they were, even if the Bee Gees were maybe a bit behind, they were definitely contemporaries of the Beatles.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And they actually, the Bee Gees rose to prominence in a big way. Someone called them the most important band of 1967 or something, which was at the height of Beatles fame. They were British slash Australian. They actually moved to Australia around the time that Andy was a baby. uh, And they lived in and around England, primarily recorded in England. So they were definitely contemporaries. I think the Bee Gees were more reactionary in their style of music. They were like, this isn't working. Let's try a different thing. Where the Beatles were like, this is working great. Let's try a different thing. Like just for the sake of (laughs) experimentation and drugs and stuff. But the Beatles really covered a vast array, a range of sounds uh, throughout their short, relatively short career.
1: And the Beatles were politically motivated, whereas the Bee Gees were kind of politically agnostic, even though they found themselves at the center of a pseudo-political musical issue also known as disco.
0: Yeah, they didn't push very hard on social activism. They were just kind of like, where are the Bee Gees?
1: They were music first, it sounds like, especially when you considered their songwriting process where they didn't necessarily go in with an agenda. They found melodies and musical riffs that inspired them and then they built upon that. They built around a theme. I mean, they sing songs about going home to Massachusetts, for goodness sake, having never even been there.
0: (laughs) Right. But uh, most importantly about their music, not necessarily their lyrics. It took them a while to gain some traction in America. But what always fascinates me is we have these ultra classics, the songs you've heard your entire life. And finding out that these songs were written in such a short period of time. Like legend has it, they sat down and wrote the bulk of the songs primarily included in Saturday Night Fever in like a weekend. How impossible is that? Can you imagine like the one weekend that completely changes your entire life? Churning out three albums in one year? Yeah. Not not just writing all the songs that would eventually become three albums, but putting them out, recording them, mixing them, releasing them. That's just, that's like overload, man.
1: Yeah, they were just, they were so prolific. It seemed like music was just pouring out of them. Yep. So the primary narrator of the documentary film was Barry, right? And Barry is the only surviving Gib.
0: Right. And he and Robin were in competition, is what he basically stated. They were kind of vying for the lead of the group, so to speak, because Barry's falsetto came about relatively late in the in the game.
1: It seemed like the brothers Gibb shared pretty equally in the songwriting process. Like they were all very musically talented. Barry and Robin were always kind of one-upping each other in terms of lead vocals, and then Maurice always found his third harmony.
0: He was the complement to their voices and also the peacekeeper.
1: Right. And he's like, uh, Barry, just call Robin. Robin, call Barry. I'm not going to be your your telephone messenger when they had falling out. Right. When they had fallings out. Fallings out.
0: Did you notice that all the discord and everything they talked about, all the strife between the brothers completely vanished after the Saturday Night Fever? stuff, which is basically when Barry said that was the toughest time in his life. If they all succumbed to family drama and drugs and fast living and can't handle the fame of it all, all that fell by the wayside or it was never discussed again after their massive fame?
1: I didn't notice that. But now that you pointed out, I think it's worth mentioning how much ground this documentary covers and how judicious the filmmaking team was in the rhythm of the storytelling have to give tons of credit and a great shout out to Mark Monroe, the writer and producer of this documentary, who is um, in full disclosure, personal friend. But also I thought this would be the best compliment to our review of Saturday Night Fever.
0: I mean, sure. But what happens, Mark? I mean, how is he going to react when I utterly trash this documentary?
1: We'll bring it He's reasonable If you can justify it Well
0: let's just say That I did resist This documentary up front Because obviously We have Barry And it's very sad That we only have Barry Of these fantastically Talented brothers In perfect harmony and uh, I expected this to be a retrospective sad tale, especially when they established him up front. We get this beloved concert footage of all three of them at their height of their fame, and then we cut to modern day with Barry, like, you know, stumbling around on the shoreline and everything. And uh, I was like, oh, man, how much are we going to cover with him? And then the documentary affected something of a cheat. We went back in time, and we got the voice of Barry Gibb, the voice of Robin Gibb. And a lot of it was recycled the interview footage. I mean, it was necessary because we no longer have Robin and Maurice around, but it was kind of a cheat because they didn't show the participants in interview with totally different looks, decades apart. You know what I mean? When they showed Barry in his later years, when he's you know now pretty old, then they showed him on screen. But for the most part, it was a cobbled together assembly of interviews probably spanning decades that happened to fit the narrative. And I was like, eh, that's kind of a cheat. And and then I realized how skillful that execution was, that you could cobble together a story and make it seamless. There maybe was a Frankenbite here and there, and then I just sort of let go of that and I let it carry me along. And to be able to do it the way that it was done with relatively limited resources was compelling. And I got to give the dude credit. I got to give the powers that be credit for crafting a narrative about Four brothers, with only one surviving, using archival footage and interviews.
1: Pretty extensive interviews and coverage of Robin and Maurice, who are no longer with us and yet felt so present in the documentary. Obviously, Frank Marshall, no stranger to Hollywood and filmmaking, although I'm not entirely sure about his experience with documentary, brings so much filmmaking experience in general, pretty big heavyweights behind this HBO documentary. But you also mentioned the runtime here. Did you feel like this was overly
0: long? Not overly long. There were some times when I questioned the direction it was going. There were some parts where we, the Bee Gees showed up and it was worldwide and obviously under the weight of that much fame and that much hype, disco had to collapse. And during the death of disco, I remember clocking at one point, there was like five minutes where they didn't mention the Bee Gees at all. And I was like, maybe this movie has lost its thread, but it came around. It felt kind of long, a little bit draggy at times. And as any documentary spanning decades with multiple participants must be, they omitted a lot of stuff. But it was enough to keep me going.
1: The documentary does feel like it diverges a little bit from the BG's very otherwise chronological story um, when it kind of goes into the the backstory of. Disco, But I thought that was pretty important context that it came from the, these underground gay clubs um, or, or, or was it specifically black and gay underground clubs
0: is what that one black and gay gentleman asserted.
1: It's still very taboo to be black and gay. I mean, Moonlight was this groundbreaking eye opening experience and for disco to provide an outlet to this otherwise very marginalized community and for it to kind of explode from there. It was just really, it was fascinating context and also kind of equally fascinating in a different way that the Bee Gees were almost completely unaware of the <laughs> the effect that they were having on this underground subculture,
0: right? otherwise known as disco. I mean, having come to the process of Saturday Night Fever really late in the game and post-production, in fact, didn't they write their songs like from Miami and just kind of send them over and it became part of this New York coming-of-age drama?
1: It seemed like basically the director called in a favor, said, hey, I need a song. I need a love song. Right. Right. Which was kind of the the beginning of it. And then they turned they just like cranked out five humongous
0: hits. Yeah. Wouldn't have thought that of all the songs, Banana Woman would have been the one.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Banana Woman, which we didn't talk about at all about in our review of Saturday Night Fever, is my all time Bee Gees favorite.
0: The ultimate love song they were striving for.
1: Despite me never really fully understanding the lyrics. Because to me it was always, Banana woman, banana woman to me. Banana woman.
0: But the introduction of disco, I mean the uh, history of disco and how it came to prominence, which led to Saturday Night Fever, taking up so much time in this documentary as it did, just kind of established how closely associated the Bee Gees were with this era of music and culture. They spent a lot of time and I was like, we're getting away from the Bee Gees here. It wasn't just like we sent in a tape one day and they loved it and all of a sudden the fame was everywhere. It wasn't a footnote. Saturday Night Fever was seismic across the world for moviegoers as well as for the Bee Gees and, and the thrust of music. This documentary definitely knew the approach that we kind of expected, I think. You know, if it had been a, a more intimate just following the Bee Gees and not the phenomenon that kind of embraced them, it might have been uh, not quite as appealing to a wide audience, I guess.
1: Are you saying that this movie weighted the Bee Gees story equally to how the public kind of weighted the Bee Gees' impact on culture and, and music, like it was all leading up to disco?
0: In a way, for Americans at least, because we were all waiting. We were like, Bee Gees, Bee Gees, Bee Gees, Andy, drugs, Bee Gees, marriages, breakup, Bee Gees, where's Saturday Night Fever? There it is, which is our (laughs) entree.
1: Kind of appropriately timed, you know, third or fourth act, you know, two thirds, three fourths of the way through the film.
0: Which was all very interesting, but this is already 20 years into their career. 1977, they dwelled on that year in the documentary for a long time seems like everything happened in that year. And when we got a hold of Saturday Night Fever, this was long after the fact. In fact, it was after all this disco hatred. So I do remember the world where disco was definitely not cool, and I was like, "Casey and the Sunshine band, get out of here." Oh, except for that one song that was on Saturday Night Fever cuz that soundtrack rocks. And I never didn't like the Bee Gees even while everybody was hating on disco. And by that time, I was into like Run DMC and NWA and stuff.
1: So, if um, other than this one guy, radio DJ, who made bringing down disco his personal mission, why did people have such a visceral, strong reaction to disco? Why, if it wasn't because of racist, homophobic hate, as one subject put it, what was wrong? What was so wrong with disco?
0: It switches to rock in the 80s and hair metal and that became a big thing and it's just shifts in the industry and the resistance of you know softer music like disco fell by the wayside and the 80s was a much grittier harder era i think i mean even michael jackson who was going to rock with you all night long on the disco floor decided he was going to be bad
1: i always remembered this interview where they're interviewing some hair metal rocker and he said that he heard smells like teen spirit and he was like we're done. Like our era is over. And I just like felt my heart drop for him because when you hear something that changes something or defines something, I mean, the Bee Gees, they defined disco because they happened upon a new sound. And they employed some new technology with a, with a drum loop, which really hadn't been heard before.
0: For some reason, I, th- I like those approaches. I like the Mark Ronson input. I like the Justin Timberlake input. Him saying they sounded like trumpets to him, that really sticks with me for some reason.
1: He wasn't high, by the way. Right,
0: I know, but it's as though he's saying something silly where he has to qualify by saying, I'm not high, by the way. I'm like, no, you're not high because I'm totally with you. This idea of songs that I've heard my entire life that... You hear the basis of just the beat of iconic songs from a drum loop that they had taken from another thing. It's like this quiet backroom editing room magic that no one ever sees. Like That loop that those two dudes came up with, that, that was the backbone of disco. And I find that stuff incredible.
1: Borrowed from another song, right? Right.
0: And that to me is what I think a documentary should be. Deconstructing this band breaking them down to their individual parts, finding out who Maurice is within the Bee Gees, who Robin is and what they contribute. That's the stuff that I was the happiest about because otherwise, personally, it was fairly surface level. It was the Bee Gees against the world. And then it was each of the Bee Gees individually, but always on kind of a path to get back together. And I still don't know who any of these guys really are. Like I expected, we go much deeper into Barry's womanizing or whatever. Or we hear the, uh, the John Freshante terrible drug stories of Andy or Robin or any of them. We never really got into their personal lives, met their families beyond them as a family unit with their parents.
1: What did you think about the Jonas brother contribution to this idea of working with family?
0: It was an interesting perspective because I was like, why is there a Jonas Brother in there? Why is Justin Timberlake set up in there? Because they can speak to certain areas of what it means. This is Justin Timberlake who appropriated, you know, the Michael Jackson-esque, maybe Barry Gibb-esque falsetto voice and R&B beats uh, as a white singer. And Jonas Brothers can speak to the discord that happens when even the tightest family units are hit with overwhelming fame and success. And discombobulating changes in their lives.
1: Wasn't there another brother or another sibling that spoke?
0: I don't know, but do you know who I expected to be in this documentary? Who totally wasn't? Dave Grohl. He talked in an interview about his drum riff for "Smells Like Teen Spirit." You know what I mean? And he said he stole that directly from Disco. That's a Gap Band drum, like uh, like a ripoff. And he says that all of Nirvana was ripping off his drumming from Disco and nobody noticed. Dave Grohl, lead singer of the Foo Fighters, that he just released an album. The Foo Fighters in total adopted the moniker of the DG's and they did an entire BG's cover album.
1: That's so weird. He's a rock presence. He's an authority. He's a documentarian himself, having directed and produced Sonic Highways. I'm looking to see if Mark Monroe worked on Sonic Highways.
0: Sound City, too.
1: Yeah. Dave Grohl's got a lot going on these days.
0: Yeah, like a Bee Gees cover album. The DGs, dude.
1: That was the Bee Gees cover album?
0: The Dave Grohl's. The DGs.
1: (laughs) That's for reals.
0: Yes. Go to Spotify. The DGs (laughs) released a full Bee Gees cover album. The Foo Fighters. Oh, man. Dave Grohl is an awesome dude. I wish he made better music.
1: Yeah, you've always been kind of a a Foo Fighters hater, but people love
0: the Foo Fighters. The Foo Fighters are fine, but they don't move me. If the Foo Fighters move you, I, I don't know. Like, again, Dave Grohl, amazing dude, but who's like Heroes, my favorite song ever? You know, I don't know.
1: But if you talk about what in music moves you, I mean, that's a really particular personal thing like do you have people in your life who are like i'm not really so much a lyric person i'm kind of just more in for a vibe and you're like and i'm like what yes you what how can you completely ignore what i think is personally the most important part of music
0: i was at odds with a significant other for years about this fact
1: it's weird right
0: yes if you don't listen to what they're saying what is filling your soul otherwise it's just do to do to do to do's that said, that's the perfect transition away from the Bee Gees' How Can You Mend a Broken Heart into what I really want to talk about about this review. Which is? You probably know a dozen Bee Gees songs in one form or another. You can't sing a single word of any of them. I'm telling you, dude. dude I, at least I got something. Now I know all the words to to Staying Alive. Right. Whether you're a brother or whether you're a mother, you're staying alive, feel the city breaking and everybody's shaking and you're staying alive and you get it. It's just the basis of the chorus. Right. And then there's like terrible counting crows esque verses where he's like, she's juicy and she's trouble. But I'm telling you, dude, not until full adulthood did I realize that sometimes like you were just doing. They're not just making noise. (laughs) Give me one other lyric besides you should be dancing. Yeah.
1: I just thought it was dancing. Yeah. I didn't even get the you should be part. Do you know
0: what they say right before that? (laughs) No. Tell me. Do it. Sing it. I was in exactly the same boat. Yeah. And then Kelly corrected me because Kelly inexplicably knows every word to every song ever. Oh. And I thought I was, because I'm a stickler, if I hear an alternate version of a song, I'm like, what is this? And I'll turn it off and I refuse to listen to it. But I realized that, like, especially for the Bee Gees is a perfect example. I don't know what the hell they're talking about. It was not until a few years ago that I realized that <laughs> you're making me snorty, <laughs> That in you should be dancing. They're not just going.
1: Well, what are they saying? They're saying.
0: What you doing in your bed? You should be dancing.
1: Oh yeah, or what you doing on your back? No. Oh, is that just was that bad subtitling on my documentary?
0: It it must have been. What you doing in your bed? Here's a sample of it right now. <laughs> We went for decades being like "Banana Woman," <laughs> Banana no clue woman what they're doing. Ta- for me. all the all that we preach about the lyrics and words being the most <laughs> important part of music, the Bee Gees—they just they blended together. There was so much reverb, such uh, tight harmonies. No clue what they were saying.
1: <laughs> yep, I stand. I stand vulnerable <sighs> in my hypocrisy. My hypocrisy knows no bounds. <sighs> But now, regardless, if, if even if I still don't understand the lyrics, I have a newfound appreciation for the Bee Gees. Saturday Night Fever and the Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, available on HBO Max, I'm pretty stoked that those are both out there.
0: Yes, but they're necessary companions. I wouldn't have let Kelly watch this without having seen Saturday Night Fever and vice versa. I mean, this it was necessary to gain a, a better understanding, I think, because no matter how you approach it, there aren't many people who are around in 1950 195- when the Bee Gees were uh, some obscure Australian act. You know, the Beatles seem to have started right out of the gate with their first recordings, uh, even though they were tooling around for years, according to Malcolm Gladwell, before they reached massive fame. As
1: a cover band.
0: Right, but I mean, really, the Bee Gees came to prominence because of a single thing. And that was so far into their career, arguably the middle of their career, that that's kind of what we have to uh, we have to pay attention to.
1: Well, I mean, I don't know. Permanence is debatable. It seemed like they lived whole lifetimes of musical careers before the explosion of Saturday Night Fever. I mean, I mean, the Bee Gees, for
0: me, I mean, for us, which right. is what's important.
1: <laughs> right. But it was cool context that they were huge before they were huger.
0: Do you know what my exposure to Andy Gibb was uh, outside of the Bee Gees? What? His appearance on Punky Brewster. As? As Andy Gibb.
1: (laughs) As international superstar, pop star Andy Gibb?
0: I'm pretty sure he was Andy Gibb on the show. I just remember he sang a song called I Can't Help It from one of his albums. And Punky's like all there smiling appreciatively next to his piano. And I was like, oh, that's (laughs) a nice song. And I always remembered it.
1: (sighs) Really, and you knew that it was a Bee adjacent song performance.
0: I mean, it's kind of hard to mistake, even outside of the of the actual group of the three brothers. As a matter of fact, I just want to be your everything. I thought was a Bee Gees song until my research for Me this too. recording.
1: Me too. But in the, within the documentary itself, they show Andy singing it.
0: Right. Andy was just made for that group, and it's sad he never got to take his place.
1: Yeah. The overall, Andy thing's pretty tragic.
0: He seemed to be the brief glimpse of flame burnout personality for this film, Uh, did the Bee Gees, did they deserve to be the disco pariahs that they became?
1: No, they were scapegoated. They were blamed for disco, a a sound that they created, but really, but a sound that they didn't have vested interest in. It was like a sound that they created amongst many other sounds, and then they were scapegoated for, for some, I don't know what, some musical martyrdom.
0: Were you aware that they had become songwriters and that songs like Islands in the Stream and all these hits were covers?
1: celine dion and diana ross
0: but they actually said that they identified was it barry that said he more or less identifies himself as a songwriter when it all comes down to it yeah that's so strange. Yeah, shocking it was as shocking as finding out that the falsetto that launched an entire era and an entire style of music was a happy accident yeah that was crazy to me
1: yeah the producer was like eh, let's just have someone
0: yell and they were like oh that sounds great And then they actively pursued songs that would be complemented by that falsetto. It blew my mind. I don't know, man. I think that constructing this documentary in the way that they did was admirable. It was a little bit slow at times, but how they laid down the construction of the Bee Gees and how they were perfectly placed just fortuitously for this massive success that came with Saturday Night Fever was a little bit like hearing the deconstruction of the songs that they broke down, you know, just in individual stems and individual instruments and tracks. I love that stuff the most. Stripping away the layers and the fame and the spandex suit or whatever and finding out who the Bee Gees were and I liked this enough for who the Bee Gees were shown to be we've seen lots of people decimated by fame and it seems like the Bee Gees were on that course
1: they set up very early on in the documentary that the Bee Gees knew that they were and were always destined for fame and that they achieved it they're survivors, what's the lyric?
0: uh, whether their brothers or mothers, they're staying alive <laughs>
1: and Barry, at least, is around to tell the tale. It's a pretty incredible story.
0: Nice little documentary, I think, but overall, as I said, has to be paired with Saturday Night Fever or your love of the Bee Gees. Otherwise, maybe a little bit difficult an entree into this world. Uh, there are lots and lots of great band documentaries that I haven't seen because I don't care about those bands. Bee Gees I care about, Bee Gees I wanted to see, and I was entertained.
1: And you give it a?
0: I give it a nice, all right rating.
1: And there you have it, an all right from Wes, a good from Iris. Please check out our review on Saturday Night Fever. And thank you for listening to this, our review on The Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? Let us know what you think, 818-835-0473, or whatevermovies at gmail.com, 100 plus other reviews at orwhatevermovies.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. So thank you for listening, and stay alive.